Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. Health and disease conditions are tricky enough to monitor and investigate when the animal or the group of the animals is right in front of you on a regular basis. Both animal owners and producers are adept when it comes to noticing slight changes in an animal's energy level, demeanor, or noting any appetite changes, or any other symptoms that could indicate something is off. When diseases occur in populations of wild animals, however, it can be just like that old when a tree falls in the forest adage. If no one observes the sick animal, how would anyone be aware that there might be a problem? And what if a disease in a group of wild animals is one that could significantly affect the whole species, or maybe other species as well? It's pretty easy to imagine some nightmare scenarios here. While we're not able to truly control nature, and in fact, we need nature to maintain its ability to adapt and evolve in response to changing pressures and stimuli, we also have a responsibility to help support the health of wild populations, since we impact them regularly in so many ways. As caretakers and advocates for the animal populations within wilderness areas in Canada's national park system, teams of wildlife experts work collaboratively to try and maintain this balance of health in their regions of care. In the past few years, in Alberta's national parks, Parks Canada wildlife specialists were challenged to manage an outbreak of a disease within one of the watershed systems. Whirling disease is a condition affecting fish and causing abnormal swimming patterns because of some physical malformations. Dr. Mark Taylor, an aquatic biologist with Parks Canada in Banff National Park, works in all aspects of aquatic resource management, and he worked with others in Alberta and Canada to manage this threat to the wild trout populations through the use of some novel strategies. Dr. Taylor, thanks for joining me today on Animal Health Insights. No problem. Thanks for having me today, Kate. So I understand that this outbreak of whirling disease was quite the challenge to manage within the watershed. Could you tell us a little bit of the backstory on when and how this disease was first noticed in the fish populations of Banff National Park? Certainly. So whirling disease was first detected in Banff National Park in 2016. And it was actually uh, a Parks Canada employee who happens to be a veterinarian, but was working as a wildlife biologist at the time. And he was walking around Johnson Lake, which is a a front country lake that's road accessible in Banff. He was walking around with his children and he happened to notice some juvenile trout in the inlet stream to the lake that had black tails and were swimming erratically. He recognized that as as symptoms of whirling disease and he he sent me an email making me aware of of the potential problem. But uh, laboratory tests are required to diagnose disease conclusively. So we went out and collected samples of fish. Uh, we certainly knew about whirling disease, but it, it was thought to not exist in Canada at all at the time. And that's that's certainly what the internet would say. And I assumed that it would be an emerging threat in the future because whirling disease does require uh, warmer water temperatures. But it, we definitely didn't have any sort of routine surveillance going on at the time. So we went out and collected the samples. And a couple of weeks later, we got a call from the lab and it turned out that our samples were positive for the disease. And eventually we found out that it was also existed in a number of other watersheds in Alberta. That must have been pretty interesting if it was the 
the first suspected case of that there. What are some of the steps that the wildlife ecologist would take if a concerning disease condition like this is noted? Well, again, at the time, Parks Canada didn't have any routine surveillance for the disease. So our first step was to find a laboratory that could actually test for the disease and then determine what protocols we needed to know in order to collect the samples, uh, store the samples and ship the samples. So we ended up working with the provincial lab laboratory in British Columbia. And after we found out about the positive test results, then we contacted our neighboring parks and provincial jurisdictions. And then we also contacted the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, or CFIA, because whirling disease is a federally reportable disease in Canada. So by law, we needed to report to CFIA as there's implications for trade in fish. Can you tell me what exactly whirling disease is caused by and what happens to a fish if they're affected? So whirling disease affects salmonid fishes. So that would be trout, salmon, and whitefish. And it's called whirling disease because the infected fish will often swim in an awkward whirling pattern. As the parasite, it causes the disease impairs the central nervous system. So an infected fish may also get a blackened tail a crooked spine, or other skeletal deformities due to nerve compression. So whirling diseases is caused by the parasite Myxobolus cerebralis, and the, the parasite has a cyclical life cycle involving two hosts. The intermediate host, where the parasite matures, is a small worm called tubifex tubifex, and the final host is the fish. Because it's cyclical, it's hard to describe where it starts, but we'll, we'll start with the, um, a deceased fish that's positive for whirling disease. Uh, when it dies, it would eventually sink to the bottom of a lake or a river, and it would release spores called mixospores. And those spores would, would then rest in the sediment at the bottom of the water body. And the tube effects, which is a small worm that lives in that aquatic substrate, then eventually consumes the parasite spores. Uh, they feed on bacteria and small plant matter, so they inadvertently eventually will digest one of these one of these mixospores. When in the digestive system of the tubifex, the parasite produces another type of spore, which is called a triactinomyxon, and we we call those TAMs for short. And those TAMs are then released into the water. Uh, basically, the tubifex like burp them out, and they're released into the water. They float passively in the water body until eventually they'll attach to either the skin, the gills, or the buccal cavity of these salmonid fishes. Once attached, the TAM grows polar filaments into and through the fish's body until it reaches the central nervous system. Inside the fish, the parasite cells divide and feed on cartilage that surrounds the central nervous system. That's what causes those telltale signs uh, with deformities of the spine and problems with swimming. Eventually, the parasite cells fuse within the fish and create the mixospore stage again. That was the first spore that I spoke about. And these are released in the feces of the fish, but mostly after the fish dies. And they'll again settle in the substrate, and then the cycle continues. Salmonids, they're actually most susceptible when they're juveniles, because that's when their cartilage is nice and soft. And as they become adults, that cartilage turns to bone, and therefore they're less susceptible as, as adults. Not all fish that test positive for the disease will necessarily show all of those telltale signs. It's also possible to find fish with blackened tails or crooked spines that aren't necessarily infected with whirling disease. So it's, it's not as easy as you might think to diagnose it visually, and testing is definitely required. I'm imagining now all the little 
tube effects worms. I think I had a project in grade 12 where we looked at tube effects worms in a, in a sample of mud from a watershed somewhere, and now I'm just imagining them all burping up <laughs> little things. <clears throat> Can you tell me why whirling disease is so significant as far as the level of concern in the Banff watershed versus other fish diseases? Whirling disease is, although it's a an invasive species that came from Europe, the parasite, it has spread across the United States over the last few decades. So it's prevalent and it has, in some examples, caused major declines in fish populations, more so than, than say, some other salmonid diseases that are out there. The other concern in Banff specifically is that we do have two species of native fish, the West Slope cutthroat trout and bull trout. And those two species are listed as species at risk under Canada's National Species at Risk Act, and we have recovery efforts that are ongoing to try to recover those populations. So obviously, whirling disease is counterproductive to those recovery efforts. So how does it spread then? The disease primarily spreads uh, with the transport of live or dead infected fish. And Parks Canada does not do any trout stocking. We haven't done that in decades. So that's not necessarily a, a particular risk. Although infected fish can disperse naturally, you know, up and downstream, and obviously we have connected watersheds to our neighbors. But the bigger concern is that the parasite spores can actually hitchhike on watercraft and fishing gear. So those spores can actually survive outside of the water for a period of time and are only killed with long periods of freezing or very hot water. So it's, the concern would be uh, watercraft and um, anglers you know, inadvertently moving the disease around as they travel from one water body to another. And Parks Canada needs the support of all of our visitors and watercraft enthusiasts to ensure the health of our national parks. And that's specifically we're asking people to clean, drain and dry their, their watercraft and angling gear. It's that cleaning and the drying which can mitigate the risk of spreading the disease. Yes, I'm pretty sure I've seen some of the signs and the postings uh, advising visitors to make sure that those recommendations are followed. But it's always really nice, I think, to know the reason for those recommendations. I can imagine that having to manage a disease like this within an entire connected ecosystem is an enormous challenge. Are there specific disease management methods that are utilized within mountain range watersheds that are different from management in other types of watersheds elsewhere in Canada? A little bit. So Parks Canada did need to design decontamination protocols for our own sampling gear as we frequently travel throughout the park. And watersheds are a consideration in that because obviously you know, we're trying to prevent the spread from one watershed to an adjacent one. We certainly have watersheds that have healthy populations of our native trout, which do not have whirling disease. So as far as we know right now, whirling disease is only found in the Bow watershed. And we'd certainly not like to see that spread to adjacent watersheds and especially over geographic boundaries like the Continental Divide. The mountains do make it a little bit easier for us to manage compared to, say, somewhere in uh, Ontario, beca only because we've done some distribution modeling studies on tube effects. And we know that they, they don't live in some of our steeper watersheds, anything above about a 3% gradient. And I think tube effects have a hard time colonizing those areas. So it does mean that certain parts of the geography of Banff National Park, for example, wouldn't, wouldn't be threatened by whirling disease. 
And compared to somewhere in Ontario that doesn't have those steep gradients, it's it's more likely that tube effects are more widespread. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess to have the uh, elevation as a as a contributing factor, it's kind of convenient, I guess, for the work that you that you had to do. I understand that in this particular disease incident, a pretty novel approach was taken to attempt to eradicate the disease from the watershed. Can you explain the approach and what was done? Well, we had learned from our neighbors south in Colorado that it is possible to eradicate whirling disease from a water body by removing all of the salmonid hosts. And this, this kind of makes sense because if you think about the life cycle, the parasite can't survive without both of those hosts. So we ended up removing all of the trout out of Johnson Lake, and those happened to be non-native trout that were stocked there decades ago when Parks Canada was was stocking non-native trout for anglers. And that was something that, that Parks Canada was already sort of in the business of doing, removing those non-native trout, because they do threaten our native species. So as part of the recovery efforts for uh, species like West Slope cutthroat trout and bull trout, we've already gone and removed non-native trout from other water bodies. So we felt very comfortable in taking that approach. What we've done then is is actually restored Johnson Lake back to a population of white suckers, which were actually the native species that were found there historically. And those fish are not susceptible to whirling disease. So as long as we don't have salmonids in Johnson Lake in the future, then we should be able to keep it free of, of the disease. That's pretty amazing to to think about removing the whole population from that. I'm I'm kind of astounded that that's even possible. Well, it I mean, it's possible in, in sort of contained watersheds. And typically, those types of projects occur sort of in headwater lakes and smaller lakes. Like, you're certainly not going to do that in, a, you know, in um, Lake Ontario or something. But like I said, it was something that we've that we've done before. Uh, so we'd already sort of figured out our methodologies and we're quite it was it was a lot of work, no doubt. But but we were still comfortable, comfortable with our ability to to get that done, because you really do need to remove every last fish or else, um, you know, the, the project's not sustainable. So I know that one factor that plays an important role in disease control as well is knowing how the infection spreads within populations. And you explained a little bit about this before when you explained the life cycle of the parasite. I just know it's so important to understand what other animals might also be involved in the transmission or that life cycle. Can you explain a bit more about how the tubiflex worm was involved in the disease management strategy for whirling disease? The presence of the tubiflex worm is actually the number one uh, risk factor in, in being able to predict where you're going to find this disease in the future. And while the TAMs can flow passively downstream throughout a watershed, areas upstream of, of tubiflex populations just simply can't have whirling disease. And the highest concentration of TAMs are going to be found in proximity to where you find the tubiflex. And that, that would lead to the highest prevalence of the disease in fish. Banff National Park, we use a, a combination of watercraft regulations, angling regulations, water body closures, and education to manage the risk of whirling disease. And as we learn more about where tube effects are found in the park, we can ramp up education in specific geographic areas. Uh, we can consider area closures or prioritize surveillance for the disease in those areas which are at highest risk. 
having a super diligent risk management strategy everywhere in the park uh, is actually pretty challenging and inefficient. So using our knowledge of where these tube effects worms are is key to designing an effective and targeted approach. That leads in well to my next question, because anybody I know who works in outdoors or the ecological realm, they love to include maps in everything. Mapping of areas, mapping of regions, mapping of ecosystems. Was there any mapping work done as part of this disease investigation? And if there was, can you tell me why it was important? Well, maps are actually a great way to visualize distribution models for any species. And we did a research project where we modeled the distribution of tube effects in Johnson Lake and in some of our our surrounding watersheds. A distribution model basically correlates the presence of a species with habitat characteristics. And that helps predict where you might find that species in other uh, other parts of the park because the the effort that's required to actually go and, and actually sample for the tube effects worm is pretty high, so it's difficult to do that across a a large geographic area. So when we mapped the distribution of tube effects in Johnson Lake, we found that it's really obvious visually that they're clustered on one distinct end of the lake, and that's where the lake is shallow. And that also means that that's where the parasite spores are concentrated. And unfortunately, that's also where um, the most most visitor use occurs. Uh, There's a beach at Johnson Lake. So there's beachgoers and swimming, uh, kayaking, lots of stand-up paddleboard. And so that combination of the human use at Johnson Lake and the, the patterns that we see in the, in the tube effects distribution was one of the main factors in helping us to decide that we actually wanted to tackle this fish eradication project. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So as far as the eradication strategy goes, how will we know if it was actually successful? So we've been using a technique that's sort of an emerging technique that's being used by aquatic resource managers that's called environmental DNA, or eDNA for short. And basically, instead of going out and trying to find a, a specific species, instead you can actually take a sample from its environment. So for example, a water sample and there's actually what's called free DNA that sloughs off the organism. It could be from a decomposing organism that's that's died, or it could be just sloughs off the mucus of a fish. Or in the case of the tube effects worm and the whirling disease parasite, it just sloughs off and, and floats around possibly in, in the water column. So you, you can actually go out and sample the water itself, not, e- not even touch the organism and find evidence of, of presence of a certain organism. And you do that by pumping large volumes of water through a filter and the filter binds to this, to this DNA. And then you actually just test the filter using molecular polymerase chain reaction uh, or PCR. It's very similar to the test they use for COVID-19. And then you could basically indirectly test for the presence of a, of a species. So we've actually done that at Johnson Lake. We're testing for the DNA from the parasite. And that could come from either the mixospore or an infected fish or the, the TAMs. And those samples are, are at a genetics laboratory right now, and we're just waiting for the results. That is really cool technology. That's very interesting. 
Are there any pieces of this strategy that will need to be maintained on an ongoing basis to prevent reintroduction of the disease? Definitely. So we are keeping Johnson Lake free of salmonids. That's historically what Johnson Lake had. It had the, the population of white suckers that are in there now. Johnson Lake is, is too warm for these native trout that we're recovering. And if non-native trout were to get back into Johnson Lake, it would actually be a threat to our native species because the non-native trout can actually disperse downstream and impact areas where we've got native species downstream. If non-native trout were to end up in Johnson Lake again, we, then we basically risk having another population of high risk of world disease in the front country with lots of public recreation and therefore a threat of spreading it to our adjacent water bodies. The challenge is that many anglers like to fish for the non-native trout. You know, perhaps they simply don't identify the difference between native and non-native trout. So there is a risk of illegal stocking of non-native trout. It's it's not necessarily a problem that we've seen in Banff National Park before, but it does occur in other jurisdictions where the anglers will put fish, uh, move fish themselves, which is actually a illegal in Banff National Park, but they do that just to create populations that they want to then go out and catch. We do think that it's a problem that mostly stems from a lack of awareness of our, our native species and, and our recovery efforts and the threat of the non-native species. So we think that education can go a long way in changing public behavior. And therefore, Parks Canada is focusing a lot of education at Johnson Lake to try to mitigate the risk of illegal stocking. Parks Canada, we're interested in uh, preventing any aquatic invasive species from arriving and spreading in Banff and, and the other mountain national parks. And that's why at the same time, we've also been managing a, a self-inspection permit system for uh, personal watercraft. And we've been piloting uh, a mandatory inspection and decontamination station for motorized watercraft. Yes, I think it certainly is good if everyone knows what they're doing and why they're doing it. So hopefully that will help to prevent this from becoming an issue in the future. I thought finally I'd, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Taylor, as an aquatic resources specialist, if maybe you could take a bit of a soapbox moment here and explain to our audience how monitoring of aquatic areas, such as watersheds, is important in a One Health context. I think most people understand how water quality is important to populations of wildlife and as well as to human populations, but how do diseases like this and health of those watersheds and their populations fit into the bigger picture of One Health? Well, my, my understanding of the One Health concept is just simply the idea that the health of animals and humans and the environment are all intertwined. And I believe humans are healthiest when they interact with the natural world. And therefore, we actually need to protect the, the environment and take our role as stewards seriously. The other thing I would consider with, is that specifically our native species are important for that sense of identity. Those species are actually what distinguishes us from other jurisdictions in the world. We know that you know, we've got limestone mountains elsewhere in the world that look very similar to the Rocky Mountains, but species like a West Slope cutthroat trout, they're only found in this region of Alberta and, and British Columbia and a little bit south into uh, Montana and Idaho. And that's really unique. So 
That's why I would say, you know, the, the risk management activities is protecting our native species. And those native species are then in turn important for the health of the public and those that want to come to Banff National Park and learn about natural history and recreate. Thanks so much, Dr. Taylor, for sharing this impressive tale of watershed health management with us today on Animal Health Insights. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We'll keep our eyes peeled for future publications on this strategy that you've utilized, and we'll share some other documents as well that are relevant online at cas.ca to provide some additional background. Thanks for joining us. The Animal Health Insights podcast is a production of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. CAS is a division of Animal Health Canada, and it has broad-based support from livestock sectors and government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial territorial initiative.